welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, the Trump era is here. I know the actual inauguration and swearing in of President Trump will not happen until noon on January 20th. But we got a new Congress in town and, you know, Trump's Starting to call the shots. And let me let, to, to quote a Republican member of Congress that I ran into the other night, um, and, and uh, I'll, I'll bleep out the profanities, this S is real, is what I was told. And it, because it, there's a sense now, we're back from the holidays, we're here in, uh, in, in the new Congress, and things are moving. And they're moving very quickly, sometimes in, in very unpredictable ways, sometimes in predictable ways. A bit of a stumble out of the gate for the new, uh, for the new Republican majority in Congress. But also the first wheels in motion for Obamacare being repealed. We're starting to see some actual legislative meat put on the, the, the bones of promises. And, uh, and Trump, by the time he takes office, will already have some real progress on his, on his cabinet appointments as well as on his legislative priorities. And, and I've been uh, trying to get a sense of how the West Wing is emerging. We've had some appointments this week, some announcements of, uh, you know, names that will not never be household names, but, you know, the, the, the people that will really be running in the traditional right. sense, if there is one, uh, the, uh, uh, the West Wing. And I've also been talking about the real estate. You know how important real estate is in the mm. West Wing. There's not a lot of it. Uh, there's not a lot of offices. There's not a lot of space. You have two, three floors there. Proximity to the Oval is, is everything. So I've been told that a uh, very interesting little kind of configuration, which is Reince Priebus, who, of course, is the chief of staff, will be in the chief of staff's office. Not surprising. Access to the Oval and all of that. But right outside his door is Steve Bannon's office and right next to Steve Bannon's office is Jared Kushner's office. Oh, isn't that nice? You have kind of like <laughs> a three-part chief – I mean, you know, three chiefs there. I mean, we have chief strategist, chief of staff and then – more powerful than both of them, uh, you know, the son-in-law. Chief son-in-law, <laughs> chief family member. And, 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 I, and I didn't even mention Kellyanne, but but uh, but it's going to be uh, right from the start, even before they walk into that in, into that structure, you, you, you have competing power centers. Wow. And, and Andy Card was quoted the other day saying, you know, he's warning is there can only be one chief of staff at a time. And his yeah. worry is that Reince isn't going to have enough power. And, and the thing is, John... I mean, that would be hard enough under under normal circumstances, and these are not normal circumstances. Yeah. There are so many things that are going to be popping at this White House all of a sudden. You have Congress starting to move its agenda. You have confirmation hearings. You're going to have a Supreme Court nominee very quickly in the early days of this White House. Uh, and you're going to have a president who has already shown – he's already basically going to war with intelligence officials, uh, and he's shown a capacity to change the storyline so quickly with his own tweets. Uh, we, we heard uh, Sean Spicer this week admit he doesn't know <laughs> when these tweets are going out, like, admitting the obvious. I don't yeah. think these guys do either. So they're going to be tugged in all of these unpredictable directions aside from the very predictable ones. And you've had a couple of very interesting conversations we're going to play uh, shortly, one with uh, Republican Congressman Tom Cole, who had some surprising things to say about the way that ethics, uh, yeah. re, uh, uh, you know, gutting of the ethics uh, committee kind of uh, or, or the, the office of congressional ethics, whatever the hell it's called, um, uh, the, the way that turnaround happened and Trump's actual role in that and Steny Hoyer, uh, who, uh, you know, of course, will be helped leading the charge for the Democrats. Um, they were they were all reacting to the Trump era. It's this new era. It is it really all is. reacting. So, so let's take a quick look before we get to those conversations at the two big, big issues. One, of course, is the 
the, the, the intel controversy and the Russian hack, and then the first big legislative battle, Obamacare. Now, my understanding is that they are pushing forward with repeal, but there's a lot of back and forth over what the hell replace looks like and whether or not as they repeal, replace has to also be put, put, in, put into motion. That's right. Um, and the one and repeal isn't immediate either. That's the other well, thing. We now know it's at least two or three years. Two or three years. Uh, really probably needs to be three years because you have to pass replace. It has to go into effect. It has to be stood up. If you remember with Obamacare, it actually took four or five years before right. it really all uh, – So, and you have a lot of the, the, the real conservatives who have been fighting Obamacare and who are saying, wait, why are we waiting? Why are we waiting two years, let alone three years? Right. And, and, and the thing is, what's become obvious is that there isn't consensus on replace. You even see the president-elect himself coming and saying, well, I want Democrats and Republicans to work together on a solution for replacement. He talked about having that big, beautiful replacement of a plan. That is not there. And, and frankly, Republicans are, are, are terrified of the consequences of this because they don't have that plan in place. It's going to take a long time. They've got a turmoil in the insurance markets to deal with. They've got a lot of pushback from people in the, in the medical industry saying you can't just pull the rug out from under the people. And they're going to learn very quickly, John, you can't insure as many people as have been insured without it costing as much as it does. There's not an easy fix. If there was, they would have found it a few years ago when they passed Obamacare. And if you, if you look at what they're actually replacing, they're not replacing – I mean they're, what they're appealing, it's not everything, as right. you know, because they're doing – Root and branch. Is, Wait. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Every single word. What, 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 did, um, what did Ted Cruz say over and over again? But, but they, they are using the so-called reconciliation process, which allows them to pass their repeal through the Senate with just 51 votes. It can't be filibustered. But those all have to be effectively budget measures, spending measures. So mm. they are going to uh, take out the medic. Cade expansion, although I am told that they will not reduce the dollar amount that is spent on Medicaid. They will simply, instead of having the mandatory Medicaid expansion, they will uh, do block grants to the states. Give a set amount to the states, yeah, and let them administer. They will undo the mandate that requires you to have uh, health insurance. They will uh, undo the subsidies to help people buy health insurance and the subsidies to, uh, to insurance companies. Um, but you know the, the, those two provisions that we always hear about—the stay on your parents' plan until you're 26, no pre—you know can't be denied for pre-existing conditions. Those actually can't be repealed under this process. But once you take apart those others, mm-hmm. you can't actually have a working health system that 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 that. that provides for that. Yeah, it's, it, it, is, it is all it's all intricately related. Yes. And, and there is not a, a right now formulated an actual plan to replace this. A lot of plans floating around there. There's a lot of potential replacements. But to find something that would that would actually not leave people out in the cold, ensure coverage for more people, bring down costs, all the goals that they're setting out. Good luck with that. And trust me, Republicans know that the politics here are potentially perilous yeah. for them. Because the disruption is going to hurt a lot of people, and it's going to hurt a lot of people in red states. It's going to hurt a lot of people over the country if they don't do this carefully, and Trump sure as hell knows that. He seems to have woken up to that fact, yes. if nothing else. And the message from the president, basically, don't bail out the the, the, the Republicans if they undo this. Not sure if Obama, that's being – President, president Obama. Obama yeah. Sorry, the current president. Not sure that's being heard. Well, uh, you'll hear the interview with Steny Hoyer in a little bit. When they're really put, put to the test, are you going to be part of a solution or not if a repeal happens? That's a hard answer. For Democrats who want to see their core values uh, taken care of, they they don't want to leave people out in the cold either. Now the other thing is 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 what's happening with the, uh, you know the 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 whole Russian hack and the mm-hmm. intelligence stuff. It's it's been fascinating to me 
to see, of course, on one hand, the way Trump has has refused to acknowledge what virtually everybody else has acknowledged um, and been willing to call out the intelligence agencies in, a, in, a, in almost a mocking way. But I'm not so sure that's going to be – I mean I, I don't know how that's going to play out because – you know, my, my sense, we, we, we talked about this earlier this week, Rick, when you're as president, he's going to be dealing with some immediate national security challenges. Maybe the first one out of the, out of, I mean, there's, it will, will be what's going on with North Korea. Mm. You know, maybe it's the, it, 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 it's the, it's the battle against ISIS, Syria, all wrapped, all this stuff. He's going to be acting based on what those very intelligence chiefs are telling him they know about situation X, Y, or Z. Yeah. He's going to be sitting in the Oval Office making decisions potentially of potentially life and death positions, uh, war and peace actions based on what the people that he is now mocking are telling him. And it's even worse than mocking. If you look at what he is saying, he, he, he's putting the word intelligence in quotes as if they don't really have yes. intelligence. And also saying maybe they need more time to build the case, suggesting that they're manufacturing a case. And he's talked about the case for WMD and, of course, the, the intelligence failure in the run-up to the Iraq war. Lots of folks, John, ha- have tough questions for the intelligence agencies. Mike Pence has said, of course, he's skeptical of the intelligence agencies. There's something different to my mind uh, between saying, look, I want to make sure that they have their facts right, to that open questioning and even mocking by a president-elect. You're right. He is going to be their most important consumer of information in just a couple of weeks' time. Does he even trust what he's being told? But, but I want to make a point here because there's been a lot of hue and cry. Oh, my God, how can Trump question the, uh, the, the integrity of our intelligence chiefs, 17 different intelligence agencies, all this stuff. Um, I just want to point out, I think this is important context. I don't think this necessarily tells us what's going on with this report. But I just want to point out that there's been a lot of questioning of the integrity and credibility of, of U.S. intelligence. And I'm not just talking about the WMD stuff. I'm talking about more recently. You remember full well Diane Feinstein basically going to war with the CIA over over her report on the interrogation practices. Uh, this was just two years ago. I remember John Brennan coming out and saying that the enhanced interrogations help prevent terrorist attacks as he made his big speech talking about that. Diane Feinstein was actually not only questioning him, disputing him, questioning the integrity and credibility of their findings, but how was she doing it? She was doing it on Twitter. Mm. She live tweeted the CIA director's speech. And then I want to play something for you very quickly, and, and uh, we'll, get, we'll get to your interviews. But um, I was there in, in 2009 when uh, Nancy Pelosi held a press conference to call out the CIA and to accuse them of misleading Congress about the issue of waterboarding. Just take a listen to this uh, exchange that I had with her at a press conference just in 2009. Just to be clear, you're accusing the CIA of lying to you in September yes. of 2009. misleading the Congress of the United States. And, and misleading also, the Congress of the United States. So anyway, my only point is, you know, Donald Trump is not the first to raise questions about the, incredible, the credibility of, of, of what the intel chiefs are saying. No, I, no. And, and I think it's, it is important context to, to remember that there is civilian control and there is final decision-making power that the, the intelligence agents themselves make these recommendations. Uh, that said, we know that this report is being finalized uh, by the current White House. It's being presented to President Obama. President-elect Trump will get a chance to see it a, as Congress well. Congress will see it next Congress week. will see it. Uh, the public will see a, a heavily redacted, a very short version of it. We'll see how much of a slam dunk, so to speak, um, we <laughs> right. see in, in, in that intelligence. But 
it does raise the question if 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 members of Congress, Republicans included, agree that it's conclusive, the current president, the current administration agrees that this evidence is conclusive, and the president-elect decides for whatever reason that he doesn't view it as conclusive, guess what? He's going to be the guy that holds the keys to the kingdom in a couple of weeks. He gets to act or not act based on that, and he gets the, the, that, that decision entirely upon him. Yeah, it's incredible. And John McCain, by the way, is saying now that he's preparing tougher new sanctions uh, <laughs> against Russia over this issue. You know, unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, exactly. All right. So we're going to have an opportunity now to, to, to talk to two members of Congress who veterans have been on the front lines. They've been through Democratic administrations, Republican administrations. They've been in the majority. They've been in the minority, starting with Congressman Steny Hoyer, the number two Democrat in the House, talking about this new era of Donald Trump. <laughs> We're pleased to be joined on Powerhouse Politics by Congressman Steny Hoyer, the number two Democrat in the House of Representatives. And, and welcome back to town for a, a new session, Mr. Hoyer. And this was an interesting one. You had President Obama there rallying the troops uh, on, on day one, even though he's only got a couple of weeks left. What was your takeaway in talking to members afterward? What was the, the sense of the of the conference at the end of this? Well, I, think, I think they were energized, and I think the caucuses united uh, on the major issue in which he discussed, which, of course, was the Affordable Care Act, uh, united in the thought that uh, while clearly any uh, bill or act uh, can be improved, particularly one that deals with a subject so as big and as complicated as health care delivery system and and access to affordable quality health care by our citizens, uh, repealing it uh, without a replacement is irresponsible and dangerous and will put uh, literally millions and millions and millions of Americans at risk, uh, including those who are covered by their uh, have an employer uh, policy. Uh, so it's not just the people who are participating in the exchanges. It will be people who are participating in the health care system generally. So, so, so uh, I, we think it's irresponsible, but it frankly is a continuation of, uh, of 64 times now uh, the Republicans have uh, offered uh, legislation to repeal and have passed such uh, through the House of Representatives. Right. That didn't pass the Senate, uh, but so this is not the first time, and uh, they continue on this, I think, reckless path, an irresponsible path. Uh, they have no alternative. They've had six years to come up with one, and they haven't done it. So, as you know, if they do time number 65, it, 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 they've got control of the Senate, and they also have the White House right now and the promise of a signature. So if it happens, the question that, that, that emerges to my mind is, how do you respond? Do you Are you part of the solution going forward if this is off the books? If, if, as Speaker Ryan outlines, the repeal happens before the replacement, will Democrats help with the replacement? Well, uh, assuming repeal happens, I think the Democrats will continue to be committed to uh, making sure, to the extent that we can, that uh, every American has the availability of affordable quality health care. I think that's our responsibility to our citizens, uh, and it's uh, both morally the right thing to do and from a policy standpoint the right thing to do. So the answer to that question is ultimately yes, but... uh, what the Republicans uh, said they wanted to do, uh, they're not apparently going to do, and that was repeal immediately. As a matter of fact, they shut down the government for 16 days uh, because uh, they could not shut, uh, could not repeal the Affordable Care Act immediately. Now they're talking about a two- or three-year uh, window in which they would repeal the Affordable Care Act, 
but keep it in place for 36 months. Well, if it is so awful and if it is so harmful to the country, as both Trump and the Republicans have uh, said for uh, over six years now, then uh, they should have had a replacement uh, and they should have had a replacement uh, in place before they repealed what it now exists. Uh, 30 million people, uh, thereabouts, are going to be affected immediately. And as I said, tens of millions or more will be affected uh, ultimately by this uh, action if, in fact, it occurs of repealing the Affordable Care Act. So to, to be clear, though, it, 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 you, you wouldn't want to be in the position. You stood in front of that placard the other day that says, make America sick again. If that's, if that's what the result is, you, you'll want to be part of a, a solution to make sure that people have access in, during any kind of transition period and going forward, right? Well, Rick, what I said is if the Affordable Care Act is repealed, then obviously we continue to believe that we ought to have a program in place to provide affordable quality health care to our citizens. We think that's a moral responsibility, as I said, and we think it's a policy responsibility. Uh, so the answer to your question, I think, is, is yes, we would work uh, to try to put a system in place. The problem uh, from our standpoint is almost everything that the Republicans have suggested either will not work or will work only for those uh, who are well off. Uh, such as their health savings accounts. Very nice if you have excess income to put into a health savings account. But if you're living on the margins, as most working people are, and living from paycheck to paycheck, you don't have extra income to put into a health savings account, and you will be at great risk because you won't be able to get insurance if you have a pre-existing condition. They say they want to uh, continue that requirement. But they don't say how they're going to make it affordable for the insurance companies to provide that. The way we did it was provide a mandate so you broaden coverage and therefore spread the risk. That's the whole premise of, of insurance. You spread the risk. If, we every, if every one of us had an automobile accident every day, uh, premiums would be out of sight. You couldn't possibly afford car insurance. But we don't. And we spread the risk, and only some of us have an accident, but all of us participate in paying uh, so that we have a lower premium uh, that we can afford, and we have the insurance. Uh, if you eliminate the mandate, which, by the way, comes directly from Romney Care in Massachusetts, which came from a Heritage Foundation uh, proposal, mm -hmm. uh, if you eliminate that, uh, insurance companies are going to get out of the market uh, and you'll only be able to get insurance if you don't have a pre-existing condition, if you're pretty healthy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the rest will be uh, left by the wayside, and they will go to a hospital, and uh, a hospital will give them uncompensated care, and the public will pay for that bill. Prior to the Affordable Care Act, everybody was paying about $1,000 extra in their insurance uh, policy, not for their care, but for care that was not compensated for because there was no system to provide the ability of people to get insurance who were either uh, unable to afford it, i.e. the subsidies that the uh, Affordable Care Act gives it, or had a condition uh, which precluded them from getting insurance. So, yes, we'll work with the Republicans if they have an alternative that we think works for all people. Uh, one thing I was struck by, you said the other if day. If they have such an alternative, by the way, they've hidden it uh, uh, very well over the last six years. Right, and you want to see it now as opposed to yeah, after a repeal. Exactly. One thing you said the other day that struck me uh, in a call with reporters, you said more people voted for this policy than against it. Do you do you reject the idea that 
the 2010 election was about Obamacare, that the 2014 midterm is about Obamacare, and that the Trump election, as you say, he, 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 he didn't win the popular vote, but he did win the election, was to some extent about Obamacare? Well, I think 2012 was specifically about Obamacare. It's called Obamacare. I call it the Affordable Care Act. Uh, I, I love the president's observation. He said the Republicans are going to call it Obamacare right up until the time it works. <laughs> <laughs> then they're going to call it something else. But 2012, we had an election. Obama Care, the president uh, whose name is attached to Obamacare, won. He got over 50 percent of the vote. He got. Uh, he was uh, one of the few presidents uh, in in our lifetime. Uh, who has gotten back-to-back over 50% of the popular vote in the election, obviously won the electoral vote as well. But I made the observation that almost 3 million more people voted for Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton said she was going to continue the Affordable Care Act. Donald Trump said he was going to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. My point was almost 3 million more Americans said we want to keep uh, uh, the Affordable Care Act, or as, as a lot of people call it, Obamacare. But uh, when you say the 2010 or the 2014, uh, President Obama was not on the ballot. It was his bill. Uh, It was our bill as well. We supported it. Uh, There were a lot of issues. There's no doubt that the 2010 uh, election was a very, very angry election. We'd just gone through the deepest recession any of them had experienced. Uh, uh, Democrats uh, were in charge. Uh, we believe that uh, the blame for that recession uh, lies with the Bush administration and the policies they pursued. But having said that, you know, we, we, we took the brunt of it uh, in 2010 because, uh, of course, it was late 2008 and 2009 when the deepest part of the recession. Uh, so I, I, I reject that 2010 was necessarily clearly there were the Tea Party, a large, angry group represented by people like Ted Cruz. Uh, about Obamacare, they think it's socialist uh, socialism, which I think is absurd because all uh, the Affordable Care Act does is it sets up a marketplace for private sector insurance companies. I don't know how the devil that's socialism, <laughs> and you get insurance to go to private doctors and to the hospitals of your choice. Uh, it's just absurd that it would be attacked, attacked as socialism. Uh, the fact of the matter is though when Obama came up for re-election, they made Obamacare a big issue. And Obama got a, uh, a much bigger vote uh, than Donald Trump got. So you view that, that, that should have been, the, that should been the, final, the final referendum on Obamacare, essentially, when he was on the ballot the second time. John Boehner said that. I don't know whether you recall. But I do. Uh, I remember that interview was Diane, my colleague Diane Sawyer. John I remember Boehner that, said, yeah. Okay, this has been resolved. But his party didn't believe that because politically they wanted to carry it forward, and there were a lot of angry people, the Tea Party for the most part, but others as well, uh, that thought this was socialism. Now, they're against Medicare, essentially. They want to block grant or voucherize Medicare. They don't like Social Security. They won't say that, but they want to uh, uh, privatize Social Security. They tried to do that under the Bush administration. It was rejected. Thank God it was rejected because when the stock market went down the tubes, had we privatized Social Security, uh, even more millions of people would have lost uh, their savings and their retirement than did. And a lot of them already uh, did that anyway because their 401k value uh, plummeted. Uh, But uh, clearly, 
Uh, we believe that pursuing this irresponsible course without an alternative, it's one thing to say, look, I've got a better plan. Mm-hmm. I get that. That's the democratic process. Put it on the floor, uh, repeal this plan, and pass this plan. As a matter of fact, as I think you saw, Rand Paul said just the other day, uh, conservative uh, Rand Paul sure. uh, said, quote, we need to think through how we do this, comma, and it's a huge mistake. Jeez, Trump could have said that. It's a huge mistake for Republicans if they do not vote for replacement on the same day as we vote for repeal. Mm-hmm. Well, that's so- the responsible position. That's, that's how democracy ought to work. If you don't like my plan, offer your plan, and we'll vote on your plan, we'll vote on my plan, and we'll see who wins. So one other point on the popular vote disparity is news just in this afternoon that there's a number of House Democrats, um, Congressman Perlmutter, Congressman Scott, uh, Jamie Raskin from your home state of Maryland, who are considering, according to Politico, a challenge to Donald Trump's victory uh, when it gets f- finally certified uh, on Friday. Do you do you think that's a good idea? Should there be a challenge to highlight this this disparity with the popular vote in the Electoral College? Or is it, is it time to move I don't on? Think it's, I don't think it's based upon the disparity uh, of, of the popular vote. Okay. I've read Mr. Perlmutter's uh, uh, legal research, which I think is very good. Uh, I don't frankly think he's going to get a senator to join in on, which the process requires one senator, one House member. Uh, so I, I don't know that we're going to have the challenge tomorrow on Friday. But we are going to have that challenge continuing. We're going to ask for hearings. We're going to ask for debate. We're going to ba- ask for uh, the Inspector General, Mr. Cummings, and Mr. Swalwell from California. Mr. Cummings from my own state have asked the IG to look at it. And it's based upon the Russian interference in the election, which the uh, Director of National Intelligence believes uh, they did, which CIA believes they did, and which FBI believes they did. So do you think There's that- no disagreement within the intelligence community that the Russians directly intervened uh, with the apparent, I, I don't know that we have specific, you know, let's do it to elect uh, Trump. Uh, I don't think that information exists, but clearly with a uh, directed at the Democratic uh, Party uh, with the uh, presumed intent of affecting uh, the election in the United States of America and undermining our democracy. So that, uh, whether it's done tomorrow or not, we're going to be pressing very, very, very hard to make sure we get at the bottom of this, uh, find out what the Russians did, uh, and uh, uh, take very substantial action. And Republicans ought to join in that. This is not a partisan issue. It is a bipartisan American democracy issue, and we need to de- defend our democracy, uh, which is being threatened not only in our own country, uh, but in Italy, in France, in Britain, and in Germany as well. We believe incidents of, of Russian uh, involvement uh, has also been evident in, in those, jur- in those uh, states as well. Do you, those do you, countries. To be clear, though, do you, do you want the challenge to go forward tomorrow? Would you Would you like to see Mr. Perlmutter move forward with this and a senator? Join? I think Mr. Perlmutter raises very legitimate issues. Uh, now, frankly, uh, you asked me, do I want it to go forward? The result would not be any difference, and uh, because, as you know, under the Constitution, what happens if that is perfected? Uh, then the House of Representatives would vote, uh, which each state having one vote. So California has one vote. 
right. and Wyoming has one vote. Uh, California has, what, 38 million people. Wyoming has less than a million. Mm-hmm. And they would each have one vote. And there's no doubt that uh, uh, presumably uh, Trump would be uh, elected by the House of Representatives, voting each state voting with one vote. So, so yeah, so, so but you'd like to see it. You'd like to see it go forward to make the statement. Then, even not, not knowing that yes, it won't change I, the result. I, yeah. if, if if he has the senator, I will support him, and I will I will speak uh, uh, on the behalf. And I would think, uh, frankly, that uh, Donald Trump, uh, President elect Trump, uh, ought to be uh, on the side of determining what has happened. Hopefully, he is not so beholden to Putin. And, and the Russians, uh, for whatever reasons, uh, or rationalizing of uh, Putin's uh, international law-breaking and criminal behavior, uh, that he would not stand up for American democracy and protect America's democracy against uh, the influences and incursions uh, by foreign uh, entities, uh, and in this case, the Russians. All right. Well, stay tuned for that. Steny, Steny Hoyer, Congressman from Maryland, the House uh, Minority Whip. We appreciate you being with us. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Now joining us here on Powerhouse Politics, Congressman Tom Cole, Republican of Oklahoma and one of the savvier political minds in the House of Representatives. Congressman, welcome and, and welcome to another Congress. Congratulations hey. on your reelection and being part of the majority. Yeah, no, it's an exciting time if you're a Republican, obviously. A little bit more challenging for my Democratic friends, but it's always uh, always fun to begin again. Uh, in, begin again, indeed. And I, I want to start with the beginning of the week, because a bit of a hiccup, uh, as I think you'd be the first to concede, uh, with the uh, day one and the, the backtrack that we saw over the ethics reform. Walk us through that exactly, and how much of a factor was Donald Trump? Because for us in the media watching this, it seemed like things were falling apart pretty quickly. You had the Trump tweet, and then and then you guys agreed to shelve this package. Oh, I think he was a big part of this, and I think people that that, that say it would have happened uh, without it are probably, uh, probably uh, not correct. Um, look, I think uh, there's no question that uh, the outside ethics commission uh, needs reform. And a lot of our members feel like uh, they've been promised that was coming for a number of years. Our leadership's never quite gotten it done. Uh, and, uh, you know, the night uh, before the opening of Congress, when you actually finalized your rules package, uh, uh, there was a proposal to fix it. Uh, it had broad support. We had a lot of members that had, frankly, been wrongly accused by the Outside Ethics Commission getting up and telling their stories uh, of, uh, you know, having this leaked to the media, having gone through horrific uh, sort of media, uh, uh, not attacks, but exposure to something they didn't do, uh, having to spend enormous amounts of money to protect themselves, and then getting a letter of exoneration. Uh, and so the reform needs to needs to occur. Uh, but as our leadership pointed out the night before, you know this is going to be an easy uh, stick for the Democrats to pick up and hit us, even though many of us agree with them, or many of them agree with us on the issue. And uh, it's easy to misinterpret in the media, and I think that's exactly what was happening. Uh, and, uh, you know, so we had the explosion the next morning, and the speaker called an emergency council. Members had already had been contacted by constituents that had seen the media reaction, uh, and they, they made, I think, a smart decision, which was, hey, this is probably not the right time, and they pulled back. What's, what's the sense of, of worry, consternation, concern about what happens if and when, and I think it's more of a when than an if, the president-elect comes out, 
against you guys in leadership, against the majority of the conference. How do you navigate that? Do you have people that are monitoring his Twitter feed, kind of shaking, <laughs> shaking in your in your boots every day about what he might tweet well, next? You know, I think uh, you have to remember most of this conference, uh, something like two thirds, maybe as much as three quarters, have never served with a Republican president. And but you Obama have, and you, all it, you I have. Yeah, and, 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 I'm not uh, not not too rattled by this. Uh, right. But these guys have never had a president who could literally reach into their districts and move public opinion. It's not like President Obama is particularly popular in most of their districts. So he couldn't generate calls. He couldn't really bring pressure at home. A Republican president who carried your district can. And so, uh, and and this one has a unique tool that has never existed before in Twitter, where the list of 20 million people. So. As I said before this whole incident, it's going to be an eye-opener to some people when uh, all of a sudden, uh, you know, it's tweeted out that, hey, my agenda is being stalled by, you know, fill in the blank, some group of Republicans. And so you need to take that seriously. This guy has a connection with your base voters that's very powerful, and that's particularly true for a new president. We're now at the peak of a new president's power. People want him to succeed. Uh, he was, uh, you know, he's uh, and he's very adroit at, at playing the outsider, and that's another new dynamic for these Republicans. Uh, a lot of them uh, are very conservative members who've been able to be the outsider against the Republican establishment. Well, they're now part of the inside uh, because Donald Trump is the ultimate outsider, and so uh, uh, I think uh, they'll find it much more difficult to resist him. Uh, than they realize or than it was uh, for them to resist a Speaker Boehner or a Speaker Ryan. So mm-hmm. at least in the short term, I think uh, President-elect uh, Trump will have pretty close to uniform support from his own party as he moves through his legislative agenda through. You mentioned Obamacare, and that is an area where you can expect uniform support, at least on the front end, at least on the repeal piece of it. And and the wheels are in motion for that. What What is your understanding of the time frame here? How long do you need of a ramp-off period? Uh, mm-hmm. And at what point do you need to have a replacement in place? You can repeal very easily, but how long does it have to take until it, it actually goes away? And then how long before you expect to, to, to have the replacement in place? I think the debate is really essentially between two and three years. And I say this as a humble appropriator. I don't sit on ways <laughs> means and energy and commerce where, where the main theater of action on health care will be. Um, but I think, uh, number one, we've guaranteed everybody no changes this year. I mean, if you're, you're in your plan, we're certainly not going to take it away from you. And my guess is it will take several months, uh, if not longer, to develop a replacement. Uh, you know, there's a set of Republican principles, and there's also some legislation that uh, is in being. Uh, you know, Tom Price has his bill. He's centrally the new uh, secretary-designate for Health and Human Services. He'll be a central player and what finally emerges legislatively, because uh, Tom's done more to think about this thing and deal with it legislatively, honestly, than any other member of Congress. There's a Republican study committee alternative that's been out there for three years that uh, Dr. Rowe, uh, Congressman Rowe from Tennessee, has put together. So how you put this in, in what's really a collapsing system, to be fair, I mean, uh, in a sense, uh, President Obama's getting out of, out of town just just ahead of ahead of time. I mean, this is one where the rates are going up on average twenty five percent. There's nine million people fewer in Obamacare than were predicted at the outset. Seven point four million people paying fines rather than going into it. Uh, you know, it's simply not a very satisfactory system. 
but uh, you, know, you know, dismantling it and replacing it is going to be difficult and probably requires some bipartisan support. And I don't think personally that's going to be easy to achieve, particularly in the Senate. So your your expectation at the end of this period, will there be people who currently have coverage who no longer have coverage? Is that is that inevitable when you think, talk about no, this? No, I, I don't think it's inevitable. I think, uh, you know, the goal here is access, universal access, not necessarily universal coverage. That is, you have the ability. Not everybody's going to choose. I mean, people, we have plenty of people that don't have coverage now because they've made a decision. I don't think it's a wise one, but they've, this, uh, you know, having once been in my 20s myself, not every decision was particularly smart. <laughs> But uh, it's, uh, you know, not unusual when you're young to decide you're invincible and you don't really need it. And frankly, about 95 times out of 100, you don't uh, at that age. But, uh, you know, the idea is getting in, locking down rates, paying in over the long haul and protecting yourself. So not everybody will make that decision, but everybody certainly ought to have the option uh, to get into uh, this at some price they can afford. And that's not going to be easy to achieve. I mean, Obamacare, no question, uh, there were millions of winners. If you had a pre-existing condition or you were in your early 20s and your insurance, uh, your your parents could continue to pay for your insurance, uh, you were sort of a winner. Or if you got one of the subsidies. But there were a lot more losers. I mean, a lot more people's rates went up, deductibles skyrocketed. Uh, frankly, uh, you know, that's why this thing has never been particularly popular. More people were losers than winners in it. And so the aim is to try and find a way to placate those people who've seen uh, their coverage shrink and their rates go up. I mean, Bill Clinton nailed it himself during the course of the campaign, where he said if you're just above uh, you know, a subsidy, then you're working twice as hard than getting half the coverage. And uh, that's, a, that's a fair criticism and complaint. Before we let you go, Congressman, what do you make of the president-elect's tweets recently in the last couple of days on Julian Assange? This is a man that um, a lot of folks have said belongs in prison. A lot of Republicans have said uh, even that he's a, a tool of the Russian government uh, and that uh, and been very critical of WikiLeaks in the past. You see now the president-elect tweeting very approvingly to try to make his case. Is this a, a war going on with the intelligence community? Is he right to be praising Julian Assange? Well, I, I would not praise Julian Assange. I mean, he cooperated in putting uh, uh, Americans at risk. So I don't see him as any sort of a hero or crusader any more than I see Edward Snowden as a hero or a crusader. Uh, these are people that uh, jeopardized American security. Uh, so, you know, again, I'll, I'll let the president-elect speak for himself, but I don't regard Julian Assange as a source that I'm comfortable with. And, and I think that's where most Republicans... And frankly, I, I think that's where the majority of Americans are on him and should be. Uh, in terms of the intelligence thing, uh, you know, I think, uh, uh, you know, I think we will have an investigation uh, and should. Uh, I think there's considerable evidence that Russians were involved. Uh, but I also think the reaction has been over the top, to put it mildly. I mean, first, there's a sort of hysteria here that uh, that as if, number one, we're shocked that the Russians would be, or any other country would be, try and influencing our elections. People try to do that all the time. There's not any evidence that they succeeded remotely. And frankly, there's a touch of hypocrisy here. I mean, the president himself went to Britain, our oldest ally, and came out publicly against Brexit. If that's not interfering in somebody else's politics, uh, I don't know what is. Well, I mean, hack, and our though. own I mean, government hacked yeah. Angela Merkel's a telephone uh, to the extent the president had to uh, apologize for it. 
to the Chancellor of Germany. So, uh, you know, we do try to influence uh, transfers of power ourselves, and people try to do that all the time. Uh, the real question is, can they succeed? And in this question, there's not an ounce of evidence that suggested this uh, had any impact. I've yet to meet the voter that said, you know, I was going to vote for Hillary Clinton, but I saw that John Podesta email, and boy, it changed my mind. It was the, yeah, I mean, it was the risotto re- recipe about, that did about it. what impacts an election and what doesn't. And ours are transparent. Uh, they're decentralized. There are 50 different state elections. They involve thousands of people. The idea that somebody sitting in the Kremlin uh, could cleverly manipulate the American public, I think, is, is more far-fetched than I would... Uh, put in a novel, let alone in real life. All right. Congressman Tom Cole, Republican of Oklahoma, and the first and only humble appropriator I've ever met. That, that, that's, <laughs> that's a new one to me. <laughs> we are lowly creatures. <laughs> yeah, if you say so. Thank you, Congressman. You bet. Take care. Have a great day. All right. Be well. Well, Rick, that's interesting. Uh, Congressman Cole has got a bit of a warning yeah. for, for Republican members about the power, uh, the, the kind of finger on the pulse power of of the incoming president of Twitter, uh, the, the <laughs> yeah. eye opener that he yeah. said that this was. He's, I mean, it's interesting that he, he thinks it's progress in a way that that people were responsive, that his members of his own conference were responsive to the public as a re- as, as a result of the button that was pressed by the president elect. We'll but, see if he has that view during the next battle. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, he's, the, the, this idea of a president at the peak of his powers, as, as Congressman Cole said, and there will be times where he splits with uh, with his Republican colleagues. And, and speaking of splits, I'm struck by the fact that uh, that uh, Steny Hoyer is saying that, uh, that of course, Democrats will be part of a solution to Obamacare if it gets to it. Now, they're going to fight against repeal every step of the way. Clearly, uh, he's, they still believe they have the will of the public upon them. They, they, you know, Steny, Steny Hoyer saying, look at the 2012 results, not the 2014 or 2016 results, if you want to see where the public is in Obamacare. But when it comes down to it, and there is no Obamacare on the books or the clock is ticking down, will, will, will Donald Trump be able to pick off some Democrats for a solution? My, my bet is yes. Unbelievable. We, we will be watching here on the Powerhouse Politics Podcast. Rick, who knows? Who knows? And what comes next? Well, we, we're from press conference next week, uh, some confirmation <laughs> hearings. It's all going to start getting very real very fast. All right. That's all the time we have for today. On behalf of the Powerhouse Politics team, David Ryan, our producer, and Rick Klein, thank you for listening. Remember, you can get us wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Give us a rating. Give us a good rating. <laughs> We've got a new year. Let's make this big. Thank you for listening.